Hi, this is Zoe Routh. In two words, you're awesome. You're awesome for tuning in and listening. I so appreciate your listenership and being able to share the space between your ears for a few minutes each and every week. This is the show about people stuff in leadership. You know, the tough stuff, the stuff that gets under your skin and drives you bonkers, as well as the stuff that lights you up. My main objective is that we shift your perspective because perspective is the gateway to wisdom. And that's what we want, wise and compassionate leaders. So let's get on to it. In this particular show, we have a very cool and interesting guest. He's like a radio star. (laughs) Yep, a real one. He has uh, been near the top radio ratings since 2000. He is from Omaha, Nebraska. And he is a nationally recognized talent coach, on-air personality, and radio program director. He's got some amazing stories to tell. Now, before we go on to what he talks about, I want you to do one thing. One thing today, and it's your good karma and benefit to you kind of thing. Go ahead and click the link in the show notes that takes you to the People Stuff Toolkit. This is where you'll get an electronic copy of my third book, Loyalty which is how to stop unwanted staff turnover, boost engagement, and create lifelong advocates, along with all the cheat sheets that go with that. That's all in the People Stuff Toolkit. That will also give you weekly access to my Words of Wisdom, my weekly blog. I want you to be part of the party and keep deepening and enriching your perspective. So that's your bonus one task of the day, bonus karma point duty. (laughs) So what does Eric talk about? This amazing man, he talks about how to deal with a radio diva. Can you imagine? I'm sure you can. I'm sure we actually have a little hint of that in some of our radio stars here in Australia, especially. Dealing with the fear of failure, something that's common to all of us as leaders. None of us want to fail, and this creeping fear of it can be crippling. So how do we deal with that? And avoiding the classic achiever trap. So without further ado, let's bring on Eric. So exciting. All the way from Omaha, Nebraska, we have our lovely guest, Eric. Welcome, Eric. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. I'm excited, too, to actually have a radio guy with bona fide radio gear and bona fide radio voice showing up on the podcast. It's an interesting thing as an interviewer. um, When you have somebody who's experienced, as you said, on both sides of the mic, it's kind of like, oh, how does this work? I hope it's going to be okay. (laughs) So I'm sure I'm in good hands. When I interview with people, they always feel like I'm critiquing them as we're talking. And that doesn't happen. We're just having a conversation. Thank you. Thank you for putting me at ease. Usually it's the other way around where I'm trying to reassure the guest. (laughs) Well, I love that you have so much experience and you have not only lots of radio experience, which I'm hopefully you'll share some of that. I'm also interested in your leadership experience. You've been a very successful radio host and show producer for 20 odd plus years and now running your own podcasting coaching business. Let me ask this question around leadership. How do you define leadership and when did you know you were doing it and had the skills to do it? I don't know that there was one point in time where I realized that I had the leadership skills. I think like many people, I started as a manager, managing people, telling people what to do. And over the years, as I learned and Uh, learned a lot by trial and error, but I also learned by uh, reading and studying and doing. I learned how to transition from being a manager to being a leader. 
And I think the difference between the two really in, in my world is the difference between telling people what to do and motivating them to do the right thing, to get their buy-in, to show them the why behind the what. When you're a manager, you just tell them what to do, and it's usually because I said so. And when you're a leader and you explain the why behind them and you really motivate them and encourage them, that's when they get inspired to do what you want them to do because it's for the benefit of the whole. It's for the benefit of the group. It's for the benefit of the company. It's for the benefit of the team. And that is what endears people to you and makes them want to follow you because you're a leader. Leaders walk in front, managers walk from behind and push. So, and I think (laughs) it really started when I had kids. When my wife and I had our kids, I really started to make that transition from manager to leader because I wanted to inspire my children to do the right thing when I wasn't around. I can imagine with them trying to get your kids to do stuff like buy-in and persuasion are hot topics right now in with some of my leaders. They're struggling with this. And I love the way that you're describing, you know, sell them the why. It's for the good of them. It's good for the team, good for the business. And they do that. And yet they get the old crossed arm, sourpuss face um, (laughs) staring back at them. So I'm wondering in your experience, it could be with kids, it could be in a professional setting, how you deal with that kind of pushback when you know that the sales pitch is the why, and yet you still get the grimace back. I try and reposition the why. I try and explain it in a different way. Uh, I've been coaching high school hockey for, oh, 15 years now. Uh, so dealing with a lot of 15, 16, 17, 18 year old high school boys. And uh, I started learning early on then that it couldn't just be the what I couldn't just tell them what to do. Because that age and that generation has started to morph into the I don't do it just because you said so there, there has to be a reason behind it. And that's when I started explaining to them the why behind it and getting them to buy in. And some kids just want to be defiant. Then it becomes uh, peer pressure tactics, or instead of explaining the why behind the, the team and the betterment of the whole, it's how they can personally benefit from it and maybe approach the why in that way. There's, there's always multiple whys. You just have to find the right one that motivates the individual. I'm wondering if you ever use the stick method. Like, the, let me contextualize. Beat them with this a, a stick. Bit. Yeah, I did that a lot. Oh no, not that way. No, that's not what you meant. No, that's not what I meant. Okay. No, I meant like the. If you don't do this, this is the consequences of. Um, so looking at the ramifications. So the one of the reasons why is like a oh, benefit, 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 and then sort of laying out the pain path if it doesn't happen. Did you ever try that method? Yes, I've I've used that as well uh, because a lot of people are motivated more by fear than pleasure. You know, more people mm-hmm. go to the doctor than go to the gym because they want to get out of pain rather than find pleasure. And so mm-hmm. they're, they're, they want their problem solved rather than finding euphoria. So there are times where, you know, if I'm coaching my hockey team, I will tell them, you know, imagine if you're the team that loses to the last place team. Like, how, how is that going to make you feel? Then you probably ought to do the basics and take care of business. You know, I tell my kids all the time that, you know, if you, if you don't do this, here's what's going to happen. And a lot of times they don't believe me and they ignore me and 
that gets to the I told you so part, but I don't even have to say I told you so, you know, it's just the kind of the look and like, well, you know, you knew it was coming. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I find that in the in the in the real world, in the business world as well. So you, there are just everybody gets motivated by the same thing. And I think that's what a lot of new leaders fail to realize. They think one size fits all or one strategy is going to get them there. And that's what I love about coaching podcasters is that every call is just a little bit different. Everybody's motivated by a different thing. Some people want to find the fame in podcasting. Some people love to meet new people. So that's why they do interviews. Some people want to start a business around their podcast. Some people don't want to talk to people. They just want to sit in a room and talk to themselves. And that's why they do a podcast. And it's everybody's motivated by something just a little different. I love that. I love the description. Somebody just wants to sit in a dark room in a cupboard and talk to themselves. Yes. That's yeah, what makes us crazy. We sit in a room and talk to people we can't see and hope that we're entertaining them. Like, well, how crazy is that? Well, it's a crazy thing, right? So radio, what a, what a career. So I was really curious about that. Like, how did you get inspired or motivated or driven into radio? Uh, completely by accident. Uh, I was getting my degree in architecture uh, because I loved architecture. I I wanted to be an architect since I was probably 12 years old. Uh, had studied drafting in middle school, uh, studied drafting and architecture in high school, got into the, the university that I wanted to get into to study architecture, one of the best architecture schools in the country. And uh, while I was in architecture school, the drafting firm I was working for closed and I needed a part-time gig because I was a college student and everybody needs a little money in college. So I picked up a gig at a roller skating rink because that's where my brother worked. And he said, hey, we're looking for some help on the weekends. Are you interested? And I said, yeah, I need a job. I'll take it. And so by working at the roller skating rink, that led to becoming the DJ at the roller skating rink. And there was a guy that worked there that worked at a radio station where my brother also worked. So I got a part-time job there because I needed money as a college student. And then I took uh, broadcasting for the non-major as an elective, as an easy elective for my architecture degree. I started really falling in love with radio and I started falling out of love with architecture because architecture was moving at the time from sketching to computers. And it just, I lost the romance for it. I lost that, that personal connection you have when you have a, a pencil in your hand and you have that sketch pad out and you're just doing your thing to creating 3D models on the computer. And it was just, I lost the, the love of the art. And here was radio where it was very similar. You know, people say, how did you go from architecture to radio? And it's very similar because in both architecture and radio, I'm given a certain set of rules and parameters. And then I have to go create inside of that. You know, I have to go be creative inside mm -hmm. of those guidelines. And architecture is, is similar that way where you have constraints that you need to design to. Yeah. Because your client says, okay, you here's, here's the plot of land we have. I need you to design me a, a hospital. It's got to fit on this plot. It's got to be seven stories. I have to have this these sorts of services in there. I have to have these, this many rooms. I have to have a cafeteria. I have to have a place for the ambulance to pull up into the emergency entrance, but I have to have a regular entrance and you have to take all of that and now go be creative. Yeah, I love it. And you have to create magic out of it. And that's the same thing we do on the radio is we take those parameters and then we go be creative with it. And that's, that's what I love about both 
I'm very analytical and creative at the same time. Very few people are 50-50 right brain, left brain. Most people are 70 to 80% one way or the other, but I'm right down the middle. And I had my kids tested. I sent them to a brain camp so they can learn all about how the brain works. And they tested them. Really? There's such thing as a brain camp? Yeah. You go learn how the brain works and how the mind functions and and what the difference is between right brain and left brain. And and is this like summer camp, but called brain camp? It's just summer camp. Yeah. It was at the university. And they went, you could go to band camp, brain camp. Yeah, they went when they were tennis like camp. 10, you know, oh my God. 10, 10 at the university learning stuff. And so they were tested and they were both 50, 50 as well. They're both half right brain, left brain. They're both analytical and creative at the same time. And that's so, unusual. It is. Yeah. Most people are very right brained creative types or they're very uh, left brained. And I don't remember if right brain or left brain's analytical. One's analytical, one's creative. I don't know. Left brain is supposedly analytical. Yeah. And right brain supposedly creative. Though it's more of a metaphor than literal mapping. They found the brain is a little bit more connected than that, but it's still a useful framework to talk about analytical versus creative. So you you usually live in one one or the other predominantly. Nobody's like a hundred percent. Uh, I don't think, I don't know enough about the brain. I don't know. So, but, so that's kind of how I fell into radio. And so while I was getting my architecture degree, I got my first full-time gig in radio. I finished my architecture degree and I stayed in radio. That's so cool. And I've been doing it ever since. So in radio, there's a lot of talking, there's a lot of listening, and there's a lot of people stuff involved in that. So over the time as an interviewer and as a leader running shows and Um, What are the key things you've learned about people over your journey? We talked about that a little bit earlier in that everybody's a little different and things excite people in different ways. People are motivated by different things. People get into radio for different reasons. When I started managing radio stations and leading teams of on-air personalities, it's interesting when they get into radio, I ask them, do you want to be a morning show host? or like afternoons, I guess, is big in Australia. Do you want to be a big-time show host? Or do you want to be the program director who runs the radio station and is behind the scenes pushing the buttons and and mixing the formula? Because you usually take one path or the other. Rarely is a good analytical programming brain a really good creative on-air brain. You're either that really gregarious, outgoing, personality-driven host, or you're that really data-driven, formulaic, strategic program director that's creating the strategy for the radio station. And as people come into radio, I say, which path do you want mm -hmm. to follow? And then I try and help them figure that out. So you're getting the, you know, the aces in the right places right? uh, in terms of making sure people in the roles that that, that help them thrive to where what motivates them. So I'm curious about this, right? So you've got a mix of personalities and I'm projecting now, you can tell me what your experience is, like Mm -hmm. big gregarious personalities. Um, Did you have much headbutting or did you you have to do a lot of work facilitating team harmony uh, because of the different types of personality or because they were all in the aces in the right places all worked? Absolutely. What's your experience with that? You really have to bring a, a 
diverse team together in a radio station, especially in a role as as the program director here in the United States, you're in charge of all of the product. If you hear it coming out of the speakers, that's under the program director's responsibility. So the program director is in charge of the really creative on-air types. And he's also in charge of the really analytical engineers who fix all of the equipment and they know their math and their science. And also in charge of the production department who is behind the scenes creating the commercials and all of the imaging and everything like that. They don't get the spotlight, but they create a lot of that, the stuff that's behind the scenes and the producers who, the producers have to do a lot of the hard work, but they don't get any of the credit for doing it. And so there's a lot of animosity there. If you're, if you don't find the right personality to be a producer where you're making the host look great and you're getting very little credit for it, that takes a very special person to be that individual. Like mm. I'm okay knowing personally that I made that show great. I don't need my name on the marquee. That takes a very special person to make that happen. And when you find somebody like that, that's magic. So what's the toughest thing you dealt with in managing teams or leading teams? I don't know that there's one toughest thing. One of the toughest things is to get a, a really personality-driven morning host to understand the strategy and why you can and can't do particular things. I would have morning hosts go on the air and do like crazy outlandish bits and really anger a client. And I would have to sit them down and say, okay, that was really funny, but unfortunately it cost us $15,000 because now the client's no longer sponsoring your show. So we can do the funny bit for the five second laugh, or we can have the $15,000 in our hand. So which do you think we might want to do? Like, let's, you know, and they're like, this is my art. This is what I do. And I go, I know, but if we're not making money, we can't pay you for your art. So let's roll your art back a little bit and let's look at the big picture. You like a paycheck, right? Okay. So if you like the paycheck, let's keep the client happy. <laughs> now find another funny joke. <laughs> Did that work? Like, it sounds like managing divas a little bit. Oh, well, divas. Yeah, it is a lot like managing divas. It is, you know, so you have to pick your battles because sometimes they'll say something on the air. A listener will call and they're angered. I can't believe they just said that. I'm never listening to your radio station again and yada, yada, yada. Some of those calls you have to address with the talent and some of those calls you just have to protect the talent from. Because if you're taking every one of those calls to your talent, they're not going to do anything. They're going to they're going to shut down. They're going to stop. They're going to stop being creative. They're going to you know be like a a kicked puppy. You could tell a talent ten things that you loved about their show, and then you say, but that one thing I kind of tweak a little bit and do differently. They were like, oh, he hates my show. He hates it. He, he's I'm I'm about ready to get fired. Like he doesn't like anything I do. I go, no, I just, I just told you 10 things that I love. It's just that one little piece. That's all we need to do. Like, oh, he hates me. He hates me. I, I never want to go in there again. Like it's, yeah, yeah. the personalities are crazy. But, you know, that's when I coach um, radio talent. And when I coach podcasters, I come from a area of, let's figure out what you're doing well and what you're doing right and what's attractive to the listener and let's do more of that because if we can figure out what you do well and have you do more of it it will naturally just flush out the weaker parts and and the stuff that you're not doing so well 
if we focus on just removing all the bad stuff from your show, you're not going to have a show anymore because we're going to take everything out. Like we have to put good stuff in and the good stuff will move the bad stuff to the side. When I coach talent, I go, I go, let's figure out what you do really well and what you enjoy doing. And let's go do more of that. It's kind of sore with your strengths mentality. I love that it's a strengths-based approach to helping people thrive. And I'm wondering, as you tell your stories and your experience, you seem to have a natural intuitive ability to understand people and how to bring them together. Did you consciously work on your leadership? Did you seek out resources or ideas or did you just go with your gut? Uh, a little of both. I got a master's in uh, business administration when I was about 10 years into my radio career. I went back to get that and to learn a lot about the things I didn't know. I learned a lot about marketing. I learned a lot about managing. I learned a lot about organization of business and uh, really enjoyed a lot of those classes. Uh, when I took a lot of the accounting classes and things like that, I did well in them because I'm, again, I'm very analytical as well as creative. So I did well in the marketing classes and I did well in the, in the statistics classes, but I learned so much about people by going through that. I learned about the fear of public speaking when I was getting my MBA because my capstone class was a group project. All of us in the class had to work on one project together. And then we had to present it to a board of directors in town uh, because we were doing the project for them. And uh, the first day of class, when the, when the professor rolled out the project, somebody said, how do we decide who has to present it to the board of directors? And they said, well, you just, I don't, however you want, just pick the person you like the least and make them present it. <laughs> and so when he left the room and we started, everybody started getting into groups, I said, well, I'll present if you want. And they all looked at me like I had three heads. They were like, what? You will? And I said, yeah, I'll, I don't have a problem presenting. I'll do that. And they said, you can't back out. <laughs> and I said, I won't back out. Don't worry. So that entire semester, I did nothing. I just waited till the end and I did the presentation. They gave me all the work that they did. I presented it. They answered questions and I got an A plus. And so that was, that was that I figured out where my strength was. So is that because of, from all of your early radio experience as a DJ, do you think, or is it just something that's never been a concern yeah. for you? No, when I was in high school, I hated speech class. Uh, you know, in high school, I'd get up in front of 20 of my peers and, and that three minutes felt like three hours. It was, that was dreadful. I took speech in college because I needed presentation skills as an architect, even in my design classes, when we'd have to get up in front of our 15 peers and present our projects, I hated that too. Just butterflies in my stomach and oh, it was dreadful. But over the years in radio, they were like, hey, we need somebody to introduce the concert. So you're the one going on stage. Hey, we need somebody to, to do the remote broadcast at the client. You're the one. And so, you know, after 30 years of being in front of a crowd, you know what I realized? The crowd doesn't care. They're not paying attention enough to, you know, if you screw up your lines or blow your words or whatever, half of them aren't paying enough attention to realize you just did it. And the half that are paying attention, they didn't know what it was supposed to be anyway. So it's a matter of just going out and doing it time and time again. And now I walk on stage in front of 15,000 people and introduce the band and, you know, everybody cheers for me. I get a little bit of rush and I don't sweat it. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> 
I love it. Um, my speaking mentor, Matt Church, says, state matters more than script. And I think that's a reassuring tip because, yeah, we can often forget our lines. And yet when we focus on our energy and our presence and our celebration mode, especially if you're going on the stage to introduce a band in front of 15,000 people, like that would naturally put you in an excited state yeah. that people resonate more with how you show up than, than specifically what you say. Exactly. Um, and it's just the way you learn how to do it. So it, my whole career has kind of just developed over the years, my coaching style, my leadership style, my personality, my confidence in front of a crowd. There was never one point in time where any of it just kind of went, yeah, you know what? That's it. It was a matter of just doing it time and time again and trying different things. I would try and lead somebody and it would completely blow up on me. And I would go, you know what? I, here's where I screwed up. And then the next time I tried a little differently, you know, there were times where I'd, I'd get done with a hockey practice and I think, man, that just went off the cliff. You know, I, I completely approached that the wrong way. I didn't include enough. Why I tried to get too much in. I didn't focus on the one big thing. There wasn't a theme that went through the entire practice to tie it all together. Like it was just, it was a disaster. And then there were other times where, you know, everything I did clicked, you know, I was on a coaching call earlier tonight uh, with a podcaster and we were just, he's taking over a podcast. It's going to be an interview style show. And, and before the call, I was, you know, I wasn't as motivated as I should have been getting on the call. It had been a long day. It was our first call together. I really didn't have a clear vision of where we needed to start. I knew where he wanted to go, but I didn't, I didn't have a good feeling of where we wanted to start. And when we got on the call, things just started clicking. Like he asked the right questions. I gave him information that just fired him up and got him excited about what he was going to do. And the more energized and excited he got, the more energized and excited I got. And the next thing you know, our 30 minute call turns into a 75 minute call because we just keep going and we're like, yeah, and we can do this and we can do that. And by the end of the call, you know, I had his three tasks for the week laid out and I was as pumped up as he was. And I'm like, let's do the next one. You know, there's just times where things click and then there's times where you're like, I ought to give that guy his money back because that call just felt painful. Like, let's, you know, bonus call on me because that was, <laughs> you, you didn't get anything out of that call. So, well, it sounds like you have a real growth mindset. I you know, it's it. like yeah. if that doesn't work, learn from it and grow. Have you ever had a fear of failure or, or what kind of relationship do you have to failure? Yeah, I, I still battle failure quite a bit. There are a lot of times where I just need to tell myself, what's the worst that could happen? Like there are times I want to launch a course or I want to even just do a Facebook live. And, you know, I don't. And I'm like, why am I not doing that? Why am I not taking that next step? Why am I not pushing myself to do it? And when I step back and look at it, it's that fear. It's that imposter syndrome. It's that, that negativity mindset. And that's when I stop and I go, okay, what's the worst that could happen? If I do this and I completely bomb, like fall on my face, all out fail, like the fail of all failures, what's the worst thing that could possibly happen? And I go, okay, if that happens, will I live to fight another day? Then why not try it? Like, you know, if I do a Facebook live and it completely bombs, chances are nobody's going to see it anyway. So why not? You know, <laughs> that's usually why it's bombed. <laughs> no one's there. <laughs> I've done it when I when I was up on stage 
for the hockey association, I used to be the guy, Hey, we need an MC for the banquet. You know, you're the, you know how to use a mic. How about you do it? And so I'd be the guy getting up in front of the crowd, you know, reading the script and announcing the awards and all of that stuff. And I completely bombed one night. Like I, I misread the script and said the wrong thing, which was completely embarrassing and uh, everybody's laughing and I'm like, okay, great. Like I just completely put my foot in my mouth there. And, you know, three days later, nobody remembered it, but me. And that's when I realized what I'm saying isn't nearly as important as what I think it is. People are going to remember what they remember and they're not going to remember most of it. And so if you get up there and you bomb, you know, the only person that's going to remember it a year from now is you. Actually, the research finds that when speakers make a little mistake, they are, they're actually more endearing to the audience. Absolutely, because um, like, people think you're real. Like, if you're too slick, like, yeah. people don't want to hear that. Yeah. It's funny that you're talking about botching up awards, and all I can think about is when they announced the wrong, the wrong winner at the Academy Awards a couple of years ago, when there's like, then the winner is blah, blah. And somebody said, actually, no, that's not them. <laughs> they didn't win the best right. picture. It's Now, this everybody one. remembers that so happening. But I, if you take a poll of who actually said that, I would render a guess that the number of people that could name that individual is probably less than 25% of the people you polled. It's the guy who was married to Madonna. I can't remember his name. He's famous at Harvey. Is it Harvey? Is it? Yeah, see? Nobody knows. No, I have no can't idea. can't remember his name. <laughs> if right? I could see his face. Right. I could see his look, his shock of shock horror coming across his face. <laughs> yeah. Even the people who watch the show can't name the guy. So it, if that guy can get over it, you can get over it. That's right. With millions of people watching, hundreds of millions right. of people watching the, the, the silly show. If yeah, you he, can embrace failure, it makes you so much more powerful as a leader because you're accepting of your team failing. Not that failing is a good thing and not that you want to accept failure. You accept failing. Like go out there and try something big. If it doesn't work, we'll regroup and try something else big. If they get into a, a habit of failure, then we have a problem. But if they're getting more hits than misses, I don't have a problem with it. I mean, if you're getting 52% hits and 48% misses, we're getting more hits than misses. We're good. Let's keep trying it. We're moving in the right direction. You know, I tell my hockey team, go out there, try something new, be exciting. As long as we win, we're good. But, you know, if you try something and it doesn't work, then that's okay. We just know to do it a little differently next time. My daughter plays piano. and and she plays these really intricate pieces and she can play really well. But when she sits down to play it for the first time, she can't play it and it frustrates the crud out of her. And I'm like, I, and I tell her, babe, you, you're not going to be able to play it the first time out. That's what makes it difficult. Like you have to learn. If everybody could do it, it wouldn't be a challenge and it wouldn't be as fulfilling. Mm. So work at it piece by piece. And then, you know, Three weeks later, she's playing right through it. And I go, remember three weeks ago when you got so frustrated that you failed at playing it? Now look at you mm. because you kept at it. Failure is just a, a part of life. And the, the sooner you learn how to embrace it and, and use it for good, the quicker you will find success. I think that's a wonderful philosophy. There is such a clunkiness to learning and failure. So failure, I see, is part of learning. I, I believe that Failure is only failure if you don't learn from your experience. That's the real failure. 
And it is, it is a clunky, painful, bruising kind of experience it can be. Though I think one of the critical shifts that keeps people from turning into poor leaders and keeps them moving towards being excellent leaders is avoiding the fear of loss, whether it's loss of reputation or loss of self-esteem or whatever that's related to a failure and turning it into a love of learning. And this is what you've been talking about. You know, if you can discover the love of learning and embrace the tumultuousness, the bumpiness, the bruisiness of trying and having go, trying and having a go until you step-by-step get mastery, then that perspective is the linchpin around which the whole world opens up. So I think that is really a really important part of becoming an excellent leader and an excellent human being, really. (laughs) If we can embrace love of learning, that will serve us extremely well. I absolutely love learning. I've been very inquisitive since I was little. Always wanted to be in the conversation, know what's going on and learn more about it. And that's what makes a great radio host. And that's what makes a great podcaster, especially a great interviewer. If you're inquisitive and you always ask why, yeah, but why is that? Or why did you do that? Or how did you get into that? Or what? That's what makes a great conversationalist. That's what makes a great interviewer. That's what makes a great radio host. When you're truly inquisitive and you have that curiosity mindset. And that's what will really make you a success. The thing I learned early on when I was programming my second radio station, uh, we hit number one in the ratings in like 18 months. We dominated the market. And when I got there, I stopped and I went, we're number one now, but now what? Like, where do we go from here? What do we do next? Yeah, that's right. You kind of reached the pinnacle. And that's when I learned that I had to learn how to enjoy the journey and not the destination. Because there's always the next destination. And if you're not enjoying the journey, you're never going to be happy. Mm. And as I lead people, as I lead my hockey team, as I lead my radio stations, as I lead my children, as I lead podcasters, They always want to be the best or the biggest or the most. And I tell them, you have to learn how to enjoy the journey to get there. That's the biggest, that's the biggest strength I think I have as a leader is to help people enjoy the now, help people enjoy the journey because it's very difficult to be the best because there's always somebody better. And when you reach that point, there's always what's next. I want to be a millionaire okay, you become a millionaire. Now what? Now is life over? Like what's next? There's always got to be something next. And if you're, and if the goal is the only thing that makes you happy, you're rarely going to be happy because that goal rarely comes along. And when it does, there's got to be another one behind it. And now you're back to being unhappy because you don't have that. You have to learn how to enjoy the journey. This is a, another critical insight, and I call that the achiever trap, where it's it, once you hit one goal, it's like set the next one, and the, the goalposts are constantly moving, so you never get this complete sense of satisfaction. You need to, yeah. the leaders I work with, when they're experiencing that, they're on a fast track to burnout, and so the work that we do is about redefining what does success mean, and as part of it is enjoying the journey and redefining what's important. I think it's important to have external goals and to have something to strive for. Uh, because that keeps us learning and growing. 
and at the same time to have internal definitions of success, which are about how did I show up today? Did I have a learning attitude today? Did I give it my all today? Did I focus on being better instead of being best? I think those are really good distinctions that add to a level of sustainability in leadership because leadership is a tough gig. It really is. There's a lot of pressure. You're at the forefront. You have to take responsibility and accountability for a lot of things inside your control and outside of your control. And so it's not for the faint of heart to do this. So I think we need these lovely distinctions that you've been sharing in order to be able to keep showing up and doing the work. I love that concept about, did I show up today? I'm one of the most goal-oriented people that I know. I love setting goals and I love accomplishing them. But every goal can't be a pinnacle. I like to view them as more as uh, milestones and road signs. Like, am I reaching that mile marker and the next mile marker? Because those little little goals helping me get to a larger goal, helping me get to an even larger goal. Uh, then, then I feel like I have that sense of accomplishment where I'm, I'm achieving goals, but I'm in, it helps me enjoy the journey even more because there's not just one goal that's the pinnacle. It's the, the journey through the little goals that help me get there. Mm. I talk about having um, process goals as well as outcome goals. And it's similar in that the process goals are um, what you do every day and having a goal to actually do the activities that brings us toward the goal. Yeah, and so the, re the reward is in the practice as opposed into the outcome. And I think having both goals is really useful. One creates the pace and cadence to actually get towards the destination yeah. and helps us to go, yeah, that was a successful day today. I came in, I, if you're a writer, I did some writing. I didn't finish the book, but I did the writing. I, I stuck right. to the intention of the writing. Love it. Um, and I think that also helps keep that sense of satisfaction and fulfillment as we, as we go along. You bet if your goal was only to write a book, then it's a pinnacle. It's, and it takes so long to get there. But if your goal is to write 2,000 words every day, then knock it out. It's, you, you enjoy the journey. I love that concept. James Clear talks about this in Atomic Habits. He says you make identity-based goals, you know. Decide to be a writer as opposed to write a book. Yeah. And the distinction is huge. So you own the identity of, of a writer. What does a writer do? A writer freaking writes. And yeah, they have projects <laughs> right. like books or blogs or whatever, but that's what a writer does. That's who they are. Their doing defines who they are. It's not the outcome that they produce. Just because you wrote a book once doesn't mean you're a writer. Like it's the act of writing. Yeah. Um, I think the same is true of leadership. You don't aspire to get to a title and you've done leadership. It's about the practice every day of leadership, of how you show up, how you engage with people how you put structure into your hockey coaching plan. Like that blew my mind. I'm like, oh my God, really? There's that much detail and thought that goes into a coaching practice for hockey? Yeah. Who knew? When people knew? see my hockey practices, they're like, you get more done in an hour than any coach I've ever seen. And I go, yeah, because I spend an hour before practice laying every part of it out and down to the minute. Like I know how long it's going to take us to take a water break. I know how long it's going to take us to screw around with the pucks to get them in the right position. I know how long it's going to take for the, the boys to have fun before they all come together in a huddle. Like I have it all laid out. So we move right through it, but it doesn't always work exactly. I have some little ebb and flow in there too. Just uh, some little wiggle room. Oh my God. That's, <laughs> that's very detailed. I'm just trying yeah. to think, I don't think I've ever taken that approach to leadership, maybe towards facilitation 
I don't think down to the 30-second mark, though, but certainly in a 15 to 10-minute increment block. But I think you're right, though. Like When you think through the process and the experience that you're designing for the people that you're leading, then this enables a good experience to happen. And that is also part of the craft of leadership is really thinking about the experience and the process and the emotional journey that people go on and the motivators, as you said, around that. One of the one of the big things I help people accomplish through podcast talent coach is to become better interviewers. They want their interview to sound like a conversation. They want it, they want their interviews to be stronger so we can have a conversation rather than this question and answer session. How do we how do I become a better interviewer? And I usually walk them down this path to to begin with the end in mind. At the end of this interview, what's the one thing you want your listener to take away from this conversation? There's a reason you're bringing your guest on the show. You love something about that guest and you're like, ah, I can't wait for my listeners to find that part out, to learn that thing, that nugget. What's that one thing you want your audience to better understand about your guest? Start there and now figure out the questions you need to ask your guest to tell that story and get to that point. And if you can start with the end in mind and help your guest tell amazing stories to make that point, then you have a great interview. I don't know. We'll see how we go. You can rate me after the show. See how we did on this. I'm like, hmm, what did I want to get out of Eric today? What I did want to unearth, it was probably was your little nuggets of inspiration that have helped you be successful as a leader in different contexts. And so from that regard, yes, it's been successful. You've had lots of wonderful little nuggets that I'm very happy to share and to highlight. My final question for you is who inspires you as a leader? Oh, I've had a ton of inspiration. It goes all the way back. My Mr. Bragg was my seventh grade sociology teacher. And I turned in some work one day and he gave me a C on it. And I, I was an A student, gave me a C on it and gave it back to me. And I was like, a C? And he goes, yeah, I know you can do better. And I was like, okay, I'll show you do better. And I did. I knocked it out of the park, you know, and then I got an A in the class. But that's the kind of like seeing the potential in the individual that you lead and caring enough to make them do their best, like their best, the work output they're doing could be better than everybody else on their team. But if it's not their best and you know that they can do better, it's it's your responsibility as a leader to push them to do their best to care enough to say, I know you can do better. There was my sixth grade band teacher. I was going to quit band after sixth grade. I played the alto saxophone. And uh, sixth grade was my first time playing in the band. And after sixth grade, I was going to quit because in seventh grade, I wanted to take drafting. I wanted to be an architect. And I had to decide between the drafting elective or the band. I said, I want to be a draftsman. I want to be an architect. I'm taking drafting. And my band director grabbed me and he said you need to stay in band and I said no I need to take drafting and he goes you're going to be able to take drafting in eighth grade you'll be able to take both band and drafting but you, you can't give up band you are good and you deserve to be able to play this instrument and you'll regret it if you quit and so I said okay and I took band in seventh grade 
And in the middle of seventh grade, I was sitting first chair in the freshman band because he pushed me because he knew I could do better. And, and it's people like that. My mom was like that. When I'd bring home, when I'd bring home a B, it's not like my mom expected me to get A's and A's was the only thing, but my mom knew I could get A's. And when I would bring home a B, she wouldn't punish me or reprimand me or anything. She would just say, I know you could do better. I, I, I know this isn't you. What happened? Like, I know, I know that, that you know this and I know you can do better. And I would, and I would do better because I, because my mom held me to that standard. And I think all of the leaders, whether it was Mr. Kaiser and band or Mr. Bragg in social studies or any of my other coaches or teachers, they all sort of took after my mom because she was the one that expected me to do the right thing and to do better. And uh, I kind of took my leadership skills from her. That's beautiful. What a lovely way. Another beautiful nugget dropped right through the radio waves for our listeners. And that as leaders, if we can inspire others to to live into their potential that we see in them, then we've given them such a huge gift. And that's what I love about coaching is just to be able to see the potential in people and see their goals. If you as a leader, so as a, as a manager, as a radio station, my radio stations were in uh, market 75. So there were 74 other markets that were bigger than my market. If you want to go work in New York or Chicago or LA or Houston or Dallas or Miami or any of them, they're all bigger than me. And if I took it personally, when somebody on my team left to go to a better job or a bigger market, if I took that personally, what kind of leader would I be? that would be against everything I believe. That would be a detriment to their career. My goal is to help them get where they want to go. And if they can give me a couple of years of time for me to help them get better so they can make that move, then I owe it to them to help them grow and get to where they need to be. If where they need to be isn't with my radio station, I need to help them get where they need to be. And that's what I love about coaching, whether it's coaching radio talent or hockey players or podcasters or my kids. My goal is to help them design their goals and learn what they need to learn in order to accomplish those goals and get where they want to go. That's why I love coaching. That's beautiful. It's very attention out and in service to others. And I think you're a great model for that. And I'm inspired by your stories and your attitude. And I'm so grateful to have had you on the show. Thank you so much, Eric. It was my pleasure. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. And I hope it wasn't too critiquing of of your personality <laughs> style. I love the uh, I love the conversation. It was very conversational. It was uh, it was quite the joy. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. So many cool stories in that episode. I love talking with Eric. He's got so much to share and I love his insights into the radio world. Like it's not a space I've spent that much time in. The key takeaways for me are, and I wrote them down, accept failing, not failure. I love that as a principle. Focus on being better, not the best. Oh, so good. And this is one of my favorites probably in his last stories about his various teachers. And that's hold others accountable to their potential. How lovely is that? Awesome. Now, do you remember your one thing, your one thing for the karma bonus points? And that's to click on the link that's in the show notes that takes you to the People Stuff Toolkit and get signed up for that so that we can stay in conversation across not only the airwaves, but the interwebs. That's it. That's your one job. Enjoy. In the meantime, live well, lead well.